pen names. Lenin, Stalin, Trotsky, all pen names. Yeah. Joseph Stalin, that's just Joe Steele. Literally the man of iron. Joe Steele is just such a dope pen name. <laughs> Joe Steele is great. I, it's like my dad would always joke that Giuseppe Verde was just Joe Green. Anyway. Hello. Hey, welcome. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Left Unread. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay. Uh, I mean, I guess we should just get right into it, right? Like, uh, why are we doing this thing? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I wrote a little, I wrote my statement of purpose thing. I'll read it. In my view, okay, here's the deal. I, I feel like I'm in a weird space, and uh, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing with my life as a leftist. Yeah. And everything I've done in previous incarnations of my life has left me feeling unsatisfied. It feels unsatisfactory. I haven't been happy with that as like an action. And so, like, the idea is to create a space of learning and exploration for those like me that are stuck in this purgatory of leftist political ideology, right? Like, those who know how they feel, have a strong idea of what is just and what is unjust, but, like, haven't explored all of the theory. I'm not a very well-read person, and I want to remedy that. So, this is the place for us to do that reading, to do that work, to bolster and develop our political consciousness together. Additionally, <laughs> so, I mean, it's kind of like the what now, addressing the what now, because I think I've developed a political consciousness. Uh, I'm old as shit, so, like, I've had enough time where I think I understand where I live politically, but I don't know what that means for what I do moving forward, right? So, like, what now is the question. So, like, I think it plagues everyone emerging in radical politics. It, uh, you know that the system is fucked. You know uh, that that is true, but that's not a political ideology. And that also does absolutely nothing to move anybody forward in uh, political consciousness or uh, revolution, you know? Uh, so it doesn't do anything to help create any real political movement toward justice. It's just kind of like stagnation. It's the opposite of moving forward. It's a dismissal. It's the sort of thing that gives you license to not move forward, to not do anything else. You know what I mean? It's some form of self-allowance to step out and pretend that that is a political yeah. action instead of recognizing that that's just succumbing to the status quo, you know, coalescing to the status quo. Sure. I also think a lot of that comes from a place of privilege, you know, like we're we're able to step outside of that because it's not affecting us in such a way. Um, I think that, like, we can step away from the equation and, uh, you know, escape unscathed, more or less. So... It's easier for us to do that, white men, than anybody else. Yeah, exactly. And I think, like, uh, that's a big part of it, too. Uh, so, like, what is my role in this if I don't want to do that? If I don't want to allow myself to fall backwards and just, like, just allow myself to peter along, knowing that I'm going to be relatively unscathed whether I do anything or not. Yeah, I mean, I really agree with what you said earlier when you were talking about, like, you feel confident in where you are ideologically, but the question now is, like, what is to be done? Uh, um, but, you know, that's a, that's a problem, because, like, I also feel confident in myself. Like, I used to refer to myself as, like, a naive Marxist, but more so, I've just dropped the naive part, because I am confident that that's the kind of ideology that I would subscribe to. I don't know. What is to be done is, is, is the question. Yeah, and I think that, like, I'm taken, I've never heard you say that naive Marxist thing before, and I'm taken by that, because I think there's a, 
there's a part of me certainly that because I know that I don't have the same level of historical understanding because I've not done all of the reading, you know, I've never read Trotsky. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I know a little bit about Lenin. I've read a little bit of Marx, a little bit of Engels, but yeah. like if, if someone was going to try to give me the gatekeeping Marxist quiz, I know that I would fail it. You know what I mean? So I don't want to go out qualifying myself as some sort of uber Marxist yeah. in fear that it's like people are going to look to me as some sort of authority when it, I have none. Yeah. And I think that's a bit of what it was. Like, that's where the, the naive part came from is that I was afraid that it wasn't, it was like not true. You know, I felt like an imposter in that sense because I hadn't done the reading. And I think that that's a big part of why I want to do this too, because it allows me to read. But, you know, as I got more entrenched, entrenched, maybe not the right word here, I started to realize that I just don't give a shit about the label. You know, leftists deserve unity because they all believe the same shit. So why does it matter that you're a trot or you're a, I don't know, a Maoist worldist? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> tanky means nothing. You know, I mean, that's, I mean, that's kind of where I'm at, right? Like I want to read to explore these ideas, but I think that the leftist community is a it's a community that's not it's both open and gatekept. Like you're welcome to wade into it, but there's so much like hyper specific knowledge that a lot of people do expect you to know, maybe not the people that matter, but you know, it as you go into left circles, you'll see those kind of things a lot. Um and I just think that that kind of like I don't know. I I feel the need to read the theory. Like I I feel that there has to be a theoretical base, but there's so much of it out there. And it's like, where do you even go? Yeah. And I, that, that like intellectual gauntlet that comes with trying to enter leftist spaces that speaks to me on a deep level. Cause yeah. again, I'm not all that well read in this idea that like, I want to know more. I want the space to explore those things with like-minded people that can also help me understand them because I'm kind of an idiot most of the time. So I really appreciate this space for doing that, like giving us the the opportunity to do that while also not getting too caught up with like all of the jargony, labely kind of bullshit. Sure. Because uh, I think all that shit's dumb. Yeah. And I also think that like we do intend to read different things, maybe even stuff that we don't agree with necessarily still in the left space, obviously. But I do expect to be challenged a little bit, you know? Yeah, and, you know, no belief is truly a belief if it goes unchallenged, you know what I mean? Like, that's what should help us more clearly define the lines of our ideology. Where I think, like you said, too, this idea that there should be some form of left unity because ultimately we all want the same goal, we just have a difference of opinion on how we get there, yeah. or what it looks like to get there. I think, like, you and I are not perfectly ideologically aligned. I think I come from a more, you know, ANCOM side yeah. of it than you do or whatever, if we want to put labels on it. But at the end of the day, it's all just about, you know, fucking building up the people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, peace, land, bread, those kinds of things. Yeah. Right? Bread and roses. Bread and roses. I like that. Uh, okay. Who are you? Uh, yeah, I'm happy to introduce myself. My name is Will DeLuca. I'm 27 years old from Atlanta, Georgia. It sounds like a dating profile now. Just to talk a little bit about my background, I went to college for economics, which is a crazy statement. I have a minor in marketing, which is also a crazy statement coming from somebody self-described as a communist. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, and what happened is that before college, I was a pretty reactionary person. 
right? I could see myself falling into the alt-right pipeline pretty clearly. And I think that if I had ended up going to Georgia Tech, I am from Georgia, that probably would have happened. But instead, I went to Georgia State and I met a lot of diverse people and I had a lot of really, really interesting debate, especially with my two roommates at the time who were both communists. And as time progressed, we just talked more and more and more. And I decided finally just to kind of look into it for myself. And I found myself agreeing more with that side of things than the classes that I've paid money for. You know, I think the most telling thing to me studying economics was getting into behavioral economics in my senior year. One where they talk about how people do not act as economic models, right? It's like all of this basis, the four years of classes that you have taken are essentially bullshit because people don't act like models do. So it's just crazy that we still hold it up as some kind of hard science. And so the more I explored that, the more I studied history, especially the confluence of those two things, I think really drove me to where I am today. That's interesting. I'm always more curious to talk more about your, you've mentioned that before to me, that you fear that you may have fallen into the alt-right pipeline. I think that that's really interesting to explore. Maybe not in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) In episode one. (laughs) All right. Welcome, Will. As for me. My name is Aaron Scott Johnson. Uh, I'm uh, old as dirt. Uh, I'm just like you know, you know, relatively average middle-aged white guy. What I think is interesting about this question about like who I am or how I came to communism uh, is that like I've never been. I think my political ideology, my like, my idea of politics, has always been very intuitive because I just think. I guess maybe it came from when I was reading a lot of philosophy and exploring kind of ethics when I was uh, a young teenager. You know, I started reading a lot of philosophy when I was like 13 or 14. And instead of doing what I was supposed to in high school, I was reading philosophy stuff instead. Maybe it came from that. But like, I just have had an understanding of what fairness is coming from a family that, you know, could barely put bread on the table for everyone. I also understood what it meant to need or want. uh, And... I recognized how unfair it is to live in a space like that. So I feel like my political ideology was formed very early around this idea of justice. And it's just like a very intuitive kind of thing for me. I don't think you need, or I at least have not needed a lot of theory to back up my feelings about that. You know, that said, I did find myself going into through music, through punk and hardcore and that community kind of finding more of a way to articulate what I already kind of felt deep in my soul, the kind of intuitive politics that I'm talking about. So like the big bands for me that really spoke to that, Propagandy, which I've tried to get you into, Strike Still Anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Os Rotten is a great crust-punk band that also was an anarchist crust-punk band that was really, really dope and spoke to a lot of like the kind of hypocrisy of American politics. You know, MDC would be another great one to mention. Anyway, the list goes on. I found myself through music finding ways to articulate things that already spoke to me. Mm. So I guess you could say that music is what pushed me more into the political arena, though I don't think it's what awakened me politically. Yeah. Yeah. If I had to say something like, um, you know, what that kind of awakening moment was, I think it's, it's interesting to see that you came from a more of like a philosophical background, whereas mine was more in history. I grew up, my mom worked a lot with special needs kids because my brother has several palsy. So I grew up in that kind of, in that kind of space, right? Where there's a lot of people with disability and I kind of, I really got to see that inequity up front. So I feel very similar that like, this is something that I have felt for a long time. That idea of like fairness does come from, there's a great tweet that says, 
these beliefs are all the kinds of things that you thought of when you were five, just drawn out to their logical conclusion. And it's like, yeah, that really is the case, you know, just to talk a little bit about what I was like before college, I think that a lot of it came from uh, anger, right? Like I was angry at the system that was not how I felt it should be. And I had kind of scapegoated that onto other people. I felt white fragility in that sense, I guess, which is its own can of worms. But yeah, it, it is a very natural thing. Like I think that to believe that things should be fair is pretty evident in humanity. Yeah, and I, I've, not, I've not heard that thought that you said about like these are the ideas that you had when you were five just taking to their logical conclusion. But it does make a lot of sense that like, because it's pretty fucking obvious that shit is terrible for a lot of people <laughs> right. around the global world, and it shouldn't be. Yeah, We all know that it fucking sucks to live in a space where you're not afforded everything that you need to survive. Why is it a revolutionary or radical idea to think that people should have that? It's I, I think that that's stupid. So, yeah, I get that wholeheartedly. Oh, yeah, also, I'm a teacher for now. <laughs> I'm formerly a teacher. I actually just left the field of teaching. You can only guess why. It's a whole fucking, I'm talking about a can of worms, man, teaching. <laughs> Goddamn. So I will add, I guess, about my story. I did get involved in political action in my late teens, early 20s. I was doing some direct action stuff because I think that maybe that's the natural progression of being, at that time, I would have called myself a progressive uh, mm. because I didn't see anything in either of the binary parties of the American political system. Right. I didn't see anything that spoke to me yeah. there. I found myself more, quote, progressive than those thinkers. So I also had my head up my own ass. I got involved in direct action because I, I would say now, looking back, I, I thought of reform as a possibility. Mm. Uh, and it pretty quickly became clear to me that that's not a possibility. And a lot of the direct action that I was involved in, I found myself quickly disillusioned by the infighting that happens yeah. among uh, different groups. I was working with radical feminist groups specifically. And there were other feminist groups that thought that the groups that I was working with were too radical and we needed to temper our language and do all this other sort of shit to be more inclusive to all people. Yeah. Specifically, they didn't like the idea that we were talking about taking violent retributive action against sexual offenders, like mm. sexual assaulters. They didn't like that sort of shit. And it's like, well, that's fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what else to say. So anyway, I found myself disillusioned with that pretty quickly. Yeah, just to speak on that as well, I mean, since we're talking about what is to be done, I also have done some organizational work. I worked with a three-letter organization, which I won't name, out of, you know, respect. They're all doing their best. But I just found it to be really bureaucratic, and I know that that's a hilarious statement coming from, you know, Marxist-Leninists or whatever. <laughs> it was a lot of going over the same thing. My wife and I both did it, and what we found is that we were really clearly being talked over a lot in a way that I think really boiled down to misogyny, not for me, but for my wife. And so we kind of got out of that because it felt really performative, really inauthentic. We weren't doing much. And that was kind of the end of it. And I think that it's that kind of feeling that we've both just described here, which is what brings us to this, what now, what next, what yeah. is to be done question, because we've tried traditional avenues to do something and found ourselves for one reason or another, not, not satisfied with that, not feeling like it was enough, but also doing nothing is clearly not right. enough. So trying to figure out what is the appropriate step. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a step in some direction, you know, any movement is, I suppose, good movement. We're also, you know, as you said earlier, we're both idiots. We haven't, we've read some, but not a whole amount, right? Like I couldn't go to a debate, not that I ever would want to, but 
That's just a fucking circle jerk, man. Yeah, God. I, you know, I'm not a debate bro, that's for sure. But I think that it is important. People have done this thinking before. That's what I'm trying to say. You know, this this thinking has been done before. We don't have to reinvent the wheel in this sense. And I think that reading these kinds of things will expand our minds. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> I suppose that's as good a transition as any we're yeah. going to get to facilitate into what we actually read for this episode. So when we were thinking about doing this podcast, we kind of came up with a list, a preliminary list of different readings, and we decided to start with principles of communism. Yeah. Seems like a pretty good place to start. Right. If you're interested in communism, then the first question is probably, what is communism? Yeah. So I think in that case, do you want to give us a brief introduction to the writer of the principles of communism? Yes. Frederick Engels was born in 1820 and then the kingdom of Prussia, son and heir to a textile mill family business. Engels studied Hegel while growing up. Upon arrival to England in 1842, he lived a double life, quote, maintaining gentlemen's lodging in one part of the city while renting a series of rooms in workers' districts. He witnessed firsthand the working class and the lives they lived. This information was collected into the conditions of the working class in England. That's a book. Years later, he found himself sending money from his own mills to none other than Karl Marx. Smithsonian refers to him as the midwife of Marxism, which I really adore. But Engels is not just Marx's ostensible sugar daddy. He was also an avid writer, philosopher, and economist with an enviable beard and a penchant for doodling cartoons. A man who described his idea of happiness as Chateau Margaux, 1848, and misery as going to the dentist. He carried just as much of a radical spirit as his counterpart, writing on the origins of the family and private property, on the use of authority in the state, and dialectical thought as a whole. That's great. I've never heard that midwife of Marxism thing. That's great. Pretty neat. And I totally agree. Because every letter that Marx writes to Engels is like, please send more money. <laughs> please. Fantastic. In that case, let me introduce the reading of the day. Today we are reading Principles of Communism. Written in 1847 as one of two initial drafts of a communist program for the Communist League, Principles of Communism was an attempt by Engels to solidify a platform after a merger of two leftist organizations, those organizations being the Communist Correspondence Committee, that's Marx and Engels, basically, and the League of the Just in England. Apparently, Principles of Communism is the second draft of this platform, written as a catechism. That's the question and answer style. The initial draft not uncovered until the 1960s has now come to be known as the draft of the Communist Confession of Faith. Really pulling in that Catholic imagery, I guess. This is why in earlier publications of principles, some questions are unanswered or merely refer back to a previous written response, as Engels was referencing that initial first draft. Uh, and as a note, the one that, that we read took those initial answers and plugged them in. So there you go. What's especially funny is that Engels, after writing principles, decided he wanted to ditch the catechistic style and instead suggested a new form and named Marx. In a letter written to Marx, he writes, Think over the confession of faith a bit. I believe we had better drop the catechism form and call the thing the Communist Manifesto. Bum, bum. As more or less history has got to be related in it, the form it has been in hitherto is quite unsuitable. I am bringing what I have done here with me. It is in simple narrative form, but miserably worded in fearful haste. His own worst critic, I guess. So shortly after this letter, Engels and Marx presented a refined vision of the eponymous principles of communism to the second meeting of the Communist League in late 1847, and were thus charged with reworking the principles of communism to draft the official Communist Manifesto. 
So that's going to take us to the reading itself. And so we both read through this and made some notes. So I think the format for the show, do you call it a show? I guess, yeah, we would call it the show. (laughs) The format for the show is that uh, each episode will take a new reading. We'll come up with some unique questions for that reading. And then hopefully over time, uh, we'll come up with some questions that we want to ask of every reading. Jumping right in, uh, did you write this question about item 11? I did write this question about item 11, just to speak Briefly before that, I really like the way that this starts off with a bit of history. I mean, I think that it is important, you know, the way that Engels talks about creating a common definition. You know, it's not only important to know what communism is, but also like what it means to be proletariat and a historical basis of that. If we're thinking of communism as like the next step, right, it's not just an alternative to capitalism, but literally a replacement to capitalism, then it is important to look at what comes before Right. That transition from feudalism into capitalism is something that Engels addresses really incredibly in the first half of this document. You know, so I really like that point up until question 11, where he talks about the Industrial Revolution itself. Right. What were the immediate consequences of the Industrial Revolution and the division of society into the bourgeois and proletariat? And the reason that this kind of struck me is because everyone learns about the Industrial Revolution in school, but the revolution in that industrial revolution is kind of left out, right? In the Mm -hmm. most part, in the American education system, we talk about the industrial revolution as like an advancement of technology. You know, factories were made and machines were spinning our thread. The cotton gin. Yeah, exactly, right? It's like this kind of innovation that launched this revolution. It's not the idea that a class of people, essentially, like a capitalist class, was, was taking power. They were revolting against the current system. And that's what Engels talks about here in question 11. Bourgeois developed in wealth and power to the utmost and made itself the first class of the country. The result was that wherever this happened, the bourgeois took political power into its own hands and displaced the hitherto ruling classes, the aristocracy, guildmasters, and their representative, the absolute monarchy. So I think that's just a really interesting point because, especially in America, we never really consider the Industrial Revolution to be a revolution, but in like France, when Napoleon does the dang thing, we do, right? We we consider that to be an overthrow. So it's a very strange difference. That's interesting. Yeah, I uh what's funny is that I didn't write any questions per se, but I wrote my a lot of notes in the margins when I was reading this initially about this section in particular. So I think there's some really interesting stuff. One thing that jumped out to me, he says uh near the in the second paragraph here where he's talking uh in response to this question. He says of formerly undeveloped countries, quote unquote, undeveloped countries, he says they bought the cheaper commodities of the English and allowed their own manufacturing workers to be ruined. And what I wrote to myself there is that that should feel familiar to anybody in America, because I think like, you know, the death of the middle class here is emblematic of the same sort of thing. Capitalists saw an opportunity to export labor out of this country, exploiting people in the underdeveloped world. And taking away workers' opportunity to make a living wage off of a particular type of labor, all the while giving us, quote, cheaper products, which was very appealing to a lot of people. And now we've seen over the course of the last, you know, 25, 30 years, how that has completely decimated uh, the American economy and killed the middle class. I think there's something that's something that Engel says here that I really like is when he talks about how much a, you know, a person is being paid. In question five, actually, under what conditions does the sale of labor of the proletarians to the bourgeois take place? He says, towards the bottom, 
the price of a commodity is on the average always equal to the cost of production. The price of labor is also equal to the cost of production of labor, right? The worker will therefore, I'm skipping down a little bit, get no more for his labor than is necessary for this purpose. And I just wrote in the margins that that's a shit life, you know, like... It goes back to that calculus. It's like if you're making $15 an hour, it's because you are necessarily making more than $15 an hour for the company. Like the worker is being paid the bare minimum here. And I think that that kind of race to the bottom especially has a hand in the globalization of the market, you know, or sorry, the, the market globalization has a real hand in that race to the bottom. Interesting. Yeah, that I have some thoughts about globalization as well. The purpose of the capitalist class is to honor labor value to literally the minimum point where people can subsist enough to continue to produce their labor, right. but also not be hurting so much that they are readily going to revolt. It's yeah. just enough to keep them so busy that they can't think about revolution and also just alive enough to continue to produce labor at the rate that they need it. Yeah, it's like you are awake and breathing and in my factory, and that's as much as I'm going to pay you. I mean, much in the same way, like in the south of the U.S., they were they would talk about keeping their slaves happy with like music on Friday nights and like a, a supply of tobacco. And it's like these things were just to string along the dismay of the people, you know? And I think that we'll talk about this a little later when we talk about what maybe they did, they talked about that was correct historically and incorrect historically. But I think that the way that capital has soothed those contradictions has changed in a way that I don't know that Marx and Engels saw when they were initially writing these things. Yeah, it makes me think of the spectacle, reading Guy Debeau and the Society of the Spectacle and, and this idea that like capitalism creates this sense of comfort mm. this like false sense of comfort this false sense of complacency that comes from i mean i guess it's just a form of false consciousness really sure. you have just enough to be distracted by the spectacle you know that you no longer you're appeased enough to not feel the need to to look deeper at the injustice that's being committed against you so to speak yeah i don't know it's like a learned helplessness yeah you know? and i think that's kind of what we mentioned in the beginning too that kind of like oh the system's fucked I'll just roll over and let it be. Yep. You know, that comes from a place of privilege. But I think that it's some true. people get to the point where they only feel that that is the poss that's the only possibility. You yeah. Know, they think that that's the only way that they can deal with it is by ignoring it or maybe pushing it away. You know, where it's, that's not helpful for anybody. Like a fatalism or something. Yeah. And your mention of globalization, I wrote a couple of notes here back to uh, question 11. Mm. First of all, I will say that I made a note to myself the first time I read it that this kind of feels a little bit like a Eurocentric telling of history. Certainly the use of the semi-barbarian countries phrase really mm. jumped out to me. Yeah. But this idea that Engels says that countries had known no progress for thousands of years, that seems like a very kind of Eurocentric ideology to me. Especially because he mentions China, like they invented paper and gunpowder and a lot of things. Yeah, it seems very yeah. dismissive of, <laughs> of, uh, of different cultures in a way that I thought was very surprising. But it's right after that where he talks about something that I, I made a note to myself about globalization. He says, in this way, big industry has brought all the people of the earth into contact with each other, has merged all local markets into one world market, has spread civilization and progress everywhere, and has thus ensured that whatever happens in civilized countries will have repercussions in all other countries. I think that that's maybe a little idealistic. It also spoke to me about this idea of how globalization has been weaponized by the capitalist class mm. as a way of, like like we were talking about the exportation of labor, 
And it's not been something that's brought people together where we see commonality across, you know, working people across the globe, but instead like created a division where it's easier for people in privileged positions to separate themselves from the plight of the working class in other places of the world. And I think that that's obviously like a deliberate weaponization. Yeah. yeah. Purposeful stratification, you know, it's like, um, you know, the poor white trash can be angry at the immigrants because the immigrants are taking all their jobs. You know, it's like, that's not true. It's, it's literally because people are hiring those immigrants because they can be paid less. It's an exploitative thing. Yeah. One thing I will say is that earlier you mentioned, I think that it is a little idealistic the way they wrote that it's a global market. I don't think that that was the case at the time, but a hundred years later, I think it was in the post-war period. America was very purposefully tying the rest of the world to the dollar and then the petrol dollar. So even if it wasn't the case then, I think it certainly is now. And you're seeing currently a lot of movements to try to not destabilize, but like dethrone that, you know, like BRICS, Mm -hmm. you know, but I mean, China running in opposition to the U.S. because the U.S. has put themselves in that position of power. I mean, the rest of the globe is tied to how well the U.S. is doing, regardless of how they want to or not. Yeah. I don't have any other thoughts. <laughs> Fair enough. No, I think that that's a, that's a valid point. Yeah. Something they definitely got right, I would say. The other thing that I thought was interesting here in this section, I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit, but the I guess it's like the last three paragraphs of this response. He says, third, everywhere the proletariat develops in step with the bourgeoisie. And he says, as the bourgeoisie grows in wealth, the proletariat grows in numbers. Mm. Continuing, he says, by thus throwing great masses in one spot, it gives to the proletarians a consciousness of their own strength. And then closes this by saying, the growing dissatisfaction of the proletariat thus joins with its rising power to prepare a proletarian social revolution. And I, I mean, what this brought to my mind was, not to get all jargony and esoteric or whatever, but first like, I thought about the lumpen proletariat, mm. this idea that there's the overwhelming majority of the working class that has a lack of class consciousness does not recognize the way that these things are happening. So the idea that the proletariat is equally growing in numbers as the bourgeoisie grows in power, I think is silly. Yeah. I think that, um, this is where I'm a little more of a Leninist, you know, I think that it is the responsibility of maybe a Vanguard to lead the way. I don't like lead the way in that sense, but this happened in the Russian Revolution. The Bolsheviks took power on a pretty small majority. They had a plurality, I should say. And then once they had taken power and cemented power, people fell in line, right? Even people that were in opposition to them said, I must follow the will of the majority. You know, and I think a lot of people would take that way. You know, later when it's when they talk about socialism in one country in principles here, he talks about how the how the revolution is going to have to be a global thing. Oh, that's maybe 19. Will it be possible for the revolution to take place in one country? Yeah, exactly. You know, the Soviets had that idea. Lenin said that, you know, we will not export, but like this revolution will continue. It'll continue to the West and we'll have the, you know, workers of Germany and France and Britain, they'll rise up alongside us. And that didn't happen. And you can see the council, the committee, I guess, move from we need to export a global revolution to we can do, we must do socialism in one country. We have to. Uh, And I think that that's just something really interesting there. It just really, this idea that like the proletariat kind of rising in parallel to the power of the bourgeois 
It's so readily apparent that there is class inequality. Like, why hasn't there been more of a proletarian uprising? You know, like, the question is, why hasn't that social revolution in the West occurred if it's supposed to happen so clearly in parallel? Yeah. I've read some, you know, I've read some schools of thought that say that there will never be revolution in the global North because it is so inextricably tied to the South. Like, the working class in the North is still miles above the people in the South and the Southern Hemisphere. And I think that there is really something to that. I think that, you know, if people were to rise up in the North, they would quickly see how reliant they are on the people in the South. And I think that that would be a hurdle more than anything. I don't know how well that could be rectified, mm. you know? I don't know. I almost wonder, though, like, we're talking about this, like, well, what next? What now? What is to be done? Question as being a vestige of privilege. Like, I feel like there's maybe even something to that privilege as being something that can be what creates the opportunity for revolution, yeah. like, creates the conditions more clearly where you actually have a space to to organize and plan and do all the other things that uh, you would need to do in order to take on an undertaking like that, maybe. Yeah, actually, that is an interesting point where the privileged are in a more, um, in a better position to do such a thing, whereas maybe the other people are not. Yeah, the, there's less precarity, yeah. you know. I don't know. Part of that seems a little paternalistic to me, you know, like they can't do it. We have to because we can, you know. I, that's fair. I, I Yeah, that's fair. I wish I knew more about the Paris Revolution yeah. in 68 mm -hmm. uh, or like the failed Paris Revolution right, right. in 68 because that seems like a good, it probably has a lot to do with what we're talking about here. Yeah, I, I actually am really intrigued to hear more about that because, you know, France was still a colonial power at the time. That was the thing. It's like that was a rebellion against their, the fact that they still had colonies, you know, and Algeria, the, the Algerian war was happening. I also know very little about that. We should put that on the list. Yeah, add it to the growing list. <laughs> put it I on guess. the list. Something that was really intriguing to me when I was reading through this the first time, maybe I'll preface this a little bit by saying, like, for the longest time, I would have said it, pacifism was a part of my political consciousness. And I, a few years ago, read Conditions of the Working Class in England and uh, subsequently read Black Power by Kwame Ture and Charles Hamilton. And in both of those works, they in one way or the other, spell out this idea that just because violence doesn't fit your closed definition of what violence is, meaning like a deliberate act of violence from one person against another person, doesn't mean that violence isn't being committed against people all of the time. You know, Engels very famously said, like, murder, it remains, you know, mm. I'm going to paraphrase it, you know, but you pull a gun, you pull the trigger, you, you shoot a man, that's murder, but you do something to to create the conditions where a person can do nothing but die, uh, deprive them of yeah. uh, stable housing, deprive them of health care, deprive them of a living wage, murder it remains, right? Yeah. And that really had like a profound impact on my thinking around pacifism. And, it, and again, like recognizing that pacifism is a, is a vestige of privilege as well. And I think he kind of addresses that a little bit in this question, question 16, where he says, will the peaceful abolition of private property be possible? will there be a peaceful handoff of power? Yeah. The, the answer is obviously fucking no. no. Of course not. I think they're going to give it up? Yeah, like, there's never been a peaceful handover yeah. of power. But I I just think it's funny that the question is like, will it be violent? And Engel's answer is like, it would be dope if it wasn't. It'd be real cool. But it ain't gonna be. Yeah, I love the line where he says, revolutions are not made intentionally and arbitrarily. Like, they are a response. They're a response to conditions, right? The contradictions have become too much. And it is the snapping point. Mm -hmm. you know 
And again, this idea that to think of a violent response as somehow violence in response to violence is somehow an equal error or an equal evil. Yeah. I think it's fucking bonkers. Two wrongs don't make a right, man. It's like, no, shoot that fascist. Yeah. Like, kill that guy. <laughs> the easiest way to get a boot off in the neck is fucking sever the leg, man. Like, I don't know. Malcolm X had it right in that way, I think. Violence is cool, dude. <laughs> but I mean, like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go on a little bit of a tangent here for a second, I guess. But part of my most recent crisis of conscience comes came around this idea around violence, right? Like, so I'm vegan. Yeah. Uh, I very much will defend the personhood of all uh, sentient creatures on this planet. And part of my discomfort, my, my most recent crisis of conscience came from this idea that, like, choosing to be vegan as an individual maybe might make you feel better about the ethical choices you're making on an individual basis, but it doesn't do really much of anything to move the needle in the context of like global factory farming and the, you know, the scale of murder that's happening on that level. And I was having a conversation on discord with another Marxist about this. And they, they said something to the effect of like, if you believe that animals are people, and I'm talking about personhood from like a philosophical perspective, right. meaning like worthy of moral consideration. If you are, uh, if you believe that animals, sentient animals are people, then the only morally defensible action is to murder farmers. And as uncomfortable as it makes me to admit, like it's pretty hard to argue against yeah. that. But I also am super uncomfortable with the yeah. idea of just like walking around and murdering farmers. Did you watch How to Blow Up a Pipeline? No. The movie was okay. The book I haven't read. Yeah. But the thesis is pretty good. And it's that this is like a crisis that will exterminate us, right? This is an extinction level crisis. Mm -hmm. Okay. We are past the point of protest, right? The only option now is to make an environment where it is so prohibitive and expensive to do this kind of fossil fuel extraction because it will be bombed and sabotaged and destroyed Mm -hmm. that they must go to a different route. And I feel that it's almost exactly the same as what you're talking about. You know, it's just in a different lens. If we're going to play it out to that point, then like, yeah, I should be, you know, up in arms, ready to take action. But the problem is like, I don't know, when is it, when is it appropriate? And there's also always that fear in all three of these scenarios, revolution included. It's like, is it too early? Am I throwing it all away because the opportunity looks like it's there? You know, is that too opportunistic? And it feels very much on an individual level, like uh, some sort of gross form of vigilantism, as opposed to like any sort of organized movement. Political sabotage has been a big part of direct action for, you know, decades. Groups like the Earth Liberation Movement are doing Mm -hmm. their monkey wrenching, and I 100% support that. Yeah. The animal liberation movement and doing their like liberation raids where they literally break into factory farms and liberate the animals. Yeah. I'm 100% all behind all of that, but like to do that as one individual as opposed to participating in a larger organized space, larger organized uh, movement, to do that as an individual maybe feels like just a way to absolve one's own guilt. Yeah. And feel like, well, I'm not, I'm doing this and not actually doing anything to move the needle forward in any organized movement or revolution. Yeah. yeah I think that, you know, it, it's like individual actions get individual results. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you're not giving a message to anybody just by doing violence, right? It has to be paired with something, you know, violence for violence sake isn't going to do anything. I mean, that's obviously nobody believes that. Yeah. It's like also about being direct and, specific you know targeted that kind of thing yeah 
Agreed. <laughs> Word. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the difference between reform and revolution. He brings that up with question 18, right? Yeah. I think that a communist still has the goal of, of making working class conditions better, but that's not the end goal. You know, like the end goal is to create the situation in which revolution can happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that a reformist stops too early. You know, everything that a reformist wants is also what a communist wants. But the communist just wants more because they understand that the end point is more beneficial to the working class than just the end point of reform. Yeah, that's well said. Coming back to those feelings of like fatalism and choosing to remove oneself from political movements because it's like, well, it's not going to make a fucking difference anyway. Why would I even bother? I find myself fighting that feeling a lot, but this idea, like you said, that like a communist will support the same, in many spaces, the communist might support the same things that a reformer might want to support, but that's just not the end goal for yeah. the communist. Because anything that will make material conditions for working people better is a net positive. Yeah. But until you're moving past that, a communist just isn't satisfied with those small little steps. Yeah, it's treating the symptom, you know, and not the problem. And... I think that one thing I really love is Angle says that democratic socialists are people that have not yet, not yet realized the conditions of their own liberation. Okay. <laughs> they just don't get it yet. And it's like, yeah, they might be well intentioned, but I don't think that they understand the root of the problem. These democratic socialists are either proletarians who are not yet sufficiently clear about the conditions of the liberation of their class or they're representatives of the petty bourgeois. Mm. You know, and that's kind of where I'm at there. I think that like, yeah, it's, you're not just treating the symptoms isn't going to fix it. And I also think that people talk about revolution as a really snap thing, but Engels is really clear that this is a process, right? This is like a, it's going to take time. It's going to be a gradual thing. And he even says that as private property is starting to be attacked, people will have no choice but to go further. Like they must take those actions they must take those steps um and i think that that's just something really important too often i think people are like ah we'll just do the the revolution and then it's done Mm -hmm. but never will that ever be the case and never has it been yeah and and again i'm no uh great student of history here but i know that like with the bolshevik revolution or whatever like when you talk to folks that are maybe have less class consciousness uh haven't had as much exposure to anything other than the kind of have been fed history through a particular lens that that sees American exceptionalism as the end all be all and doesn't acknowledge indoctrination. Yeah, there you go. The manufactured (laughs) consent sort of thing. They'll say like, well, you know, Marxism has never worked. There's never, you know, the reason it doesn't, it hasn't happened is because it can't happen. It will ultimately cut itself off at the legs or whatever. They obviously don't understand the Jakarta method stuff and now the idea that like there's been American intervention in every possible revolution, but like even probably the most successful, at least from my view, successful communist revolution would have been the Bolshevik revolution. And they did not achieve the ultimate goal, ever find their way to a true communist utopian state or anything like that. Even though, what, in fucking 50 years, they turned the country around into like a preeminent superpower in the global space. Yeah, in 1917, Russia was stretched so thin in the war that they were at the point of collapse, right? The star the star had stepped down at that point. There was a provisional government in place and they really had to get it together 
You know, it's incredible to think that in 20 years until World War II, they were able to turn Russia into a superpower. And I think that that goes unseen by every American possible, you know, mostly because people just don't know anything here. Yeah. And I, I it's often used, I think, scapegoated as like a reason to prefer reform over revolution mm-hmm. or like to be satisfied with reform over revolution. I wrote like the little note next to this that just said like liberal false consciousness, yeah. this idea of allowing people to be mired in liberalism without ever recognizing that they're just going along with the status quo. What I thought was really interesting on this question, what will be the course of this revolution? Engels writes, democracy would be wholly valueless to the proletariat if it were not immediately used as a means for putting through measures directed against private property and ensuring the livelihood of the proletariat. And I think that that's really a powerful dismissal of this idea of reform uh, over revolution, this idea that... A democracy run by the bourgeoisie will benefit the bourgeoisie. Will always benefit the bourgeoisie, yeah, exactly. They're self-interested. They're not interested in in us, in everybody else. The reform that will be allowed is the reform that maintains the status quo or maintains the kind of power differential between the bourgeois and the proletariat. Yeah, unless you change who has the power ultimately, which is... At the end of the day, force. It's at the end of the day, violence. Then, like, they're never going to give up power again. You know, they're never going to cede any power that is meaningful in a way. It will have to be taken, you know. And I think that, like, there's so much historical basis for that, even in America. You know, shout outs to the weekend, right? Shout outs to the 40 hour work. Yeah. Week. Fucking say that, dude. Yeah. Again, like this idea that just how much we take for granted that has come from vicious, violent struggle on yeah. behalf of the working class. Right. It's been really refreshing to see, like, is that AFL-CIO, the guy, the Teamsters dude who's been, like, really, uh, yeah, he, <laughs> he's been, like, a firebrand. And it's like, this is the kind of old school shit that needs to happen, needs to be happening. Mm-hmm. How, why have all politicians forgotten how to do fucking politics? It's like Joe Biden just does nothing because he doesn't fucking care about it. Mm-hmm. Like, he could wield power in a way that's meaningful, and so could a lot of people, including the progressive bloc, but they don't. Yeah, 100%. Like, I think this is why a lot of leftists are completely disillusioned with, and even leftists that maybe came into the leftist space because of politicians like yeah. Bernie or AOC or something like that, have quickly become disillusioned with them because they see they're not doing shit. Yeah. They're not doing anything, not using, they're not seemingly doing anything to actually try to reform yeah. the system. Yeah. Even having, I think even having like, socialists in power you'll see that happen like bernie even though i'm furious at him for his stance on israel leveraged his power in congress to block um funding going to israel that was that's real leverage and it's one man Mm -hmm. one man did that you know even if i'm not happy with him right now uh self-admittedly i will let you know that i am a bernie bro or i was a bernie bro i still as much as i love any american politician i love bernie Uh, i don't love zionism it's unfortunate yes I agree. I'm just going to look the other way and say, do you, Bernie? You're 89. I think that something really shocking that a, a person who's not already in leftist spaces might come up to is the idea in uh, question 23, what is what will be its attitude to existing religions? He says right away, all religions so far have been the expression of historical stages of development of individual peoples or groups of people. 
I think you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who doesn't describe themselves as a leftist that would take that perspective, right? The idea that religion comes from a materialist base, you know, it's just a reflection of the conditions of the time. And I was talking to, to my wife about this earlier. So I was talking to Carissa about this earlier. And um, she said something really interesting that the church always reflected what the society was about. As soon as money was involved, the church was all about money. Mm. You know, they were all about idols. When we, when the shift, the big shift, I guess, happened from like pluralistic religions to a monotheistic religion, you also saw that reflection in the church, you know? And I just think that that's something that you really have to grapple with. The idea that like these religions are simply constructions, you know, constructions of the time, constructions of the era, and they've just spiraled out into what we have today. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that that's something that I certainly did not, even if I have always had that kind of materialist analysis, that was still a shocking sentence to me. You know, to see him say like, ah, religions are fake, you know, in this moment, I am euphoric. I don't need your phony gods. Tip my fedora. Um, you know, but the same thing is there, especially there's a lot of recent discourse about sex work, right? Mm -hmm. In the question before he talks about the relation of the family to private property. And he says that the family will essentially be a private relation. It will be one that the government has no interference in because it does not matter. Right. The two main roles of the woman that attach them to the man in terms of like property, which is um, the dependence rooted in private property of women on the man and of the children on the parent. So it's like just by just by abolishing that private property, simply by abolishing private property, no big deal. Uh, we can get rid of all of these things. I mean, a lot of I would say problems, but like problems, you know, societal issues. I do think that that's a really interesting idea. So. I mean, we're both married. Yeah. We chose to get married, even though like marriage is in and of itself kind of a vestige. It's like an antiquated kind of yeah, almost anachronistic thing because there's no longer like a property exchange necessarily. I, I certainly don't view her as my property and she didn't take my name, which is, uh, you know, comes from a vestige of that kind of patriarchal kind of property transfer, which no shots to anybody that does. But I mean, like the, the question is like, why get married at all then? Yeah if you don't see marriage as this kind of exchange of property or this exchange of it's for the tax benefits, baby, double income, no kids. That's what the fuck it's all about. <laughs> 100%. That's what yeah, it was. That's us too. I mean, Carissa did take my last name, but it's because she wanted to, mm -hmm. you know, it's not because I was like, you have to, we're getting married. Yeah, I actually wanted to change it to something ridiculous. I was like, <laughs> let's either hyphenate or put change our last name to hammerlock or something absurd. <laughs> Just because. Well, I mean, like, and I will say, like, as a self-admitted feminist, the idea that a woman not taking the husband's name when they get married as, like, some sort of feminist position doesn't avoid the patriarchal tradition of carrying on the, yeah. the family name. Like, my wife still carries her father's right. name. That's always such, that's, like, always the gotcha. It's like, it's just your dad's name. Yeah, but I mean, what I do think is interesting, though, is this idea that, like, he kind of speaks about marriage in this sense as, like, it will go away because there's no longer, like, a property value exchange yeah. happening. And I think that that's... Obviously not true in the modern world anyway, because yeah. I still feel like there's value in having a marriage with my wife. Maybe it's like a ship of Theseus kind of deal. You know, if all of the if all of the bits of marriage that make it traditionally marriage are gone, is it still marriage? Or are we really just talking about love at this point? You know, because all, the, all that. that marriage is, is like you give the government a record of your love which is such a weird thing to say, but like that it's just, it's for record keeping ostensibly. Like that's what it's about. The government needs to know these things whether that's right or wrong, whatever. But I think that in this kind of scenario, that's what, it, like, I think marriage would still be around, but I don't think that's the marriage that Engels is talking about here. 
That's probably know? true. Yeah. It's really uh, like just communion with another person that you want yeah. to spend the rest of your life with. Word. Double income, no kids. The dink lifestyle is the lifestyle. I do. I mean, we kind of jumped around here a little bit, but little bit. since we're talking about item 21, I think like it's probably worth talking about his position on prostitution here, which you kind of alluded to already. Yeah. So he says at the end of this item, community of women is a condition which belongs entirely to the bourgeois society in which today finds its complete expression in prostitution. But prostitution is based on private property and falls with it. And I think I legitimately don't know what my answer would be, but do I think prostitution would be abolished with capitalism? What do you think? It's a tricky question, and it's mostly because sex work, in a sense, has been a little bit reclaimed in recent years. I think that people are more tolerant of sex work than ever before, but I still think we're, again, we're both white men, so Mm -hmm. I've never done sex work for the record. I'm not going to speak for you, Um, but please don't. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's, it's like, I think that it will be abolished. Or at least if it still exists, it will be something different. Just like how marriage was, how we were just talking. You know, there might be, God, on Twitter, the discourse was about sexual mutual aid. I'm so sorry if I've just given anyone a horrible flashback. But I think that the idea of expressing yourself through sex might still exist. Prostitution, in its original sense, however, I do not think will still exist. And I think that that kind of discrepancy in those two ideas might be where this discourse and debate comes from, you know, is the fact that when some people say prostitution, they're thinking of one thing, whereas when some people say prostitution, they're thinking of something else. And I think people that have reclaimed sex work in that sense are talking about a different kind of sex work. It's not necessarily even work, although it is work. Yeah, 100% it's work. I mean, I, I think you bring up an interesting point because it, and it's difficult to talk about without veering into having a conversation about commodification in a way that I think is like objectifying yeah. and obviously not something that anyone should be interested in, certainly not you or I are interested in. But like sex as an expression of oneself is certainly going to continue to persist throughout humanity. Like, yeah. There's always going to be some sort some form of sexual expression and people will always seek pleasure through sex in the way that they always have. Yeah. But when there's no longer currency, when it's no longer something that can be intentionally commodified, and when people have their conditions met to a point where they no longer have, and again, not to be denigrating of people that are in the world of sex work, because certainly I don't have a pejorative view of that, but there are people in sex work that are in sex work because it is their only opportunity to make a living. And if their conditions are met to a point where they no longer have to resort to something that is their only opportunity, obviously it will go away. Right. And if there's no longer a currency exchange uh, associated with the act, then I would agree that it's like, you, do you even call that prostitution anymore? Yeah. I certainly wouldn't. No, I don't think I would either. I think that it is something different at that point. But, you know, fuck whoever you want. Have I'm, as yeah, much sex I, as you I, want. I was just about to say, I ain't going to stop you. You know, let a thousand blossoms bloom. <laughs> Uh, can we come back to the religion thing for a minute? Absolutely. So I, number one, this is one of the most underdeveloped responses in this entire writing. I think in all of communist history, the religion question is probably the one that's been the trickiest. You know, I think that the way that especially like actually existing socialist countries have dealt with religion has been make or break for a lot of them. So I think it is really important because although I do agree with what Engels is saying here that 
religion is a materialist reflection, I think that it has developed into something more. You know, one thing I will say there is that you can see the trend for religion decreasing in like socially democratic countries, like mm-hmm. the Nordic countries. Um, but I don't necessarily know if that has to do with their shift in like socialism, you know? What would you attribute it to, you think? It's fucking cold. You know? <laughs> it's fucking I think no one that, wants to go. I think that the youth are more and this is for America too, like this is not just fucking Sweden or Finland or whatever. I think that the youth are more knowledgeable than ever before, and they're more willing to say, this is fucking stupid, you know? And they also aren't getting beat senseless when they say no, mm-hmm. you know? there's They're not being, like, ostracized from their community. They're not being fired from their jobs. And the way, like, religion is so less of a part of everyone's life today than it ever has been. I was thinking about that yesterday. I work at Goodwill right now, not a store, but, like, a distribution center. And I work with books, mostly. And... About 50% of the books that I get in are religious books. Mm -hmm. And it's really striking to me the way that religion plays such a big part of people's lives. And I think that it used to be more of a necessity, you know, whereas now it's kind of in the background of things. Some people definitely are still motivated by their faith, like pushed by their faith. They act on their faith. They live by their faith. But I think more and more and more, especially uh, when you're talking about the Protestant God, like the personal God, people are like, it's whatever, you know, especially if you can just say your thanks to your personal God and then get away with whatever, then people mm-hmm. will do whatever. What I found really intriguing about this question, you know, full disclosure, I'm an out and out atheist have been for a very long time. So I'm, I'm sure that I'm biased in a, a particular direction. Right. But I just found it very interesting that he so conclusively says that it will make all existing religions superfluous and bring about their disappearance. I will acknowledge that religion has been used as a tool of the ruling class uh, for a very long time, has been weaponized against working people or people for a very long time, has certainly done a lot to prop up people in positions of power, and has been, in a weird way, almost like commodified as a way to help people find positions of power. Sure. And so I'll acknowledge all of that while also seeing, at least here in, like I was raised Baptist, okay? In those circles, there's certainly a lot of shit about the church that I think is totally fucked. But at the same time, there's like, if you want to talk about like food banks and spaces Mm -hmm. of positions of mutual aid where people are like trying to take care of others in their communities. Yeah. Good luck finding one that's not attached to a fucking church. Imagine the civil rights movement happening without the black church. Right. Like it's impossible. There's no way. Those are focal points of community. And I think that they do exist as a third space, right? Yeah. Where, and especially in America, it does not exist otherwise. Yeah. And so it's almost grown parallel to, I'm not saying that those other, like it being used as a tool of the ruling class has gone away because yeah. it certainly still is being done. But in parallel, there is a cultural component to it that I think would persist even when, you know, positions of power shifted so dramatically like they would after a cultural revolution. Yeah, I think that it is much less of a hegemonic force than it was, especially because who fucking cares about the Vatican anymore? You know, most of the world. But still, um, (laughs) there's George Harrison has a song where he says the Pope owns 51% of General Motors. What the fuck am I doing listening to him? (laughs) It's like, just chant the name of your own God. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I think that that's interesting. Uh, maybe we'll talk about this again when we get to the what did he get right, what did he get wrong yeah. kind of thing. So yeah, we did jump around a little bit, but if we come back to item 19, will it be possible for this revolution to take place in one country alone? The question that I had 
was, uh, how is universal unity around a proletariat revolution possible? Like, hasn't globalization been weaponized against the proletariat as a tool for the bourgeois, specifically to stop organization and uh, that kind of unification? Yeah, I think that it's a tool. I mean, I think that the connectedness of the people of the globe are useful. It just depends on who's using it. I mean, it, this is like the Leninist thing, right? Unity for what? Unity for whom? There is a way that globalization could be utilized for revolution. I mean, what Engel says here is that the communist revolution will not merely be a national phenomenon, but must take place simultaneously in all civilized countries. That is to say, at least England, America, France, and Germany. And I think that that is pretty apt, you know, even in today's society. If there were to be a revolution in America, England, France, and Germany, not even necessarily simultaneously, but in like the span of a few years, that that would ripple outwards. I think that it is uh, possible for there to be like global revolution in that sense, even though globalization has been such an effective tool of the capitalist. That's interesting. When he said that line that you quoted there, that it must take place simultaneously in all civilized countries, at least England, America, France, and Germany... My first thought, again, maybe this is my fatalism coming in, was just like, good fucking luck getting all yeah. four of those countries to have a revolution at, at one time. Yeah. What would happen is if a revolution started brewing in one of those countries, the other three would see it as the threat that it is and do some would yeah bandy up against it. It almost it's almost that it would have to happen in all of those countries yeah. simultaneously, but the likelihood that it would feels very low to me. What's an interesting thing though is that I think maybe America is the head of the snake. Nowadays, I think that if somehow, you know, flip the switch and America becomes the, the Communist Federation of the United States, what the <laughs> fuck ever, I don't think anyone could stand against it. The, you know, China maybe, but they would not. Why would they? Why yeah. would they? Exactly. Exactly. I think Britain is no longer a power. I think that they are still powerful, but I, I don't think of Britain in the same way, you know, hmm. on the global, they're probably at the bottom of the ladder on the, on the like top Western countries, the G8 list. or whatever. Yeah, there you go. The, the top 20 or whatever the fuck it is. Is it a G12? I have no idea. Now I'm just thinking of like a G6. There was a really funny interview where someone was, it was like a Chinese, maybe an ambassador. And he was just like, you guys need to stop looking at us as competitors. There's no way. Like we just view Britain as another important nation that we want to do business with. Mm -hmm. You are not competing with us. Period. <laughs> and it's like that's literally true. Like yeah. by the numbers, that's a fucking fact. Yeah. You know, but I don't think Britain sees it that way. They don't want to, at no. least. They don't want to admit it. Yeah. yeah. How interesting. So it's almost like there could be a vanguard here in the US with some sort of revolution here. You know, uh if you yeah. Take a swing at the king, right? Like, you you fucking go for the head. Like, shoot for the stars. We might as well do revolution here, because everywhere else is going to be crushed by here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, the CIA will fucking jump right, right in. Like yeah, they always Jesus. Have. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, another thing to say about global unity is that I think that the level of interconnectedness via the internet, regardless of how you feel has changed the global landscape. I mean, look at what's happening in Palestine right now. Mm -hmm. You know, there's been more popular support in the West for Palestine than ever before. That's 100% true. Yeah, a big part of that is the internet. It's TikTok, you know? Mm -hmm. My God, when Nikki Haley said that, like, every 30 minutes of TikTok you watch makes you 18% more pro-Hamas. <laughs> I'm like... What does that even mean? <laughs> Consuming information makes you more pro-Hamas? Hmm, curious. Yeah. Yeah. 
Fuck Nikki Haley, man. Well, she's going to be the candidate at this point. It looks like it, yeah. yeah, Sorry to say. What a fucking chill. So that was the principles of communism. Woo! Read it. Yeah, I think it was a good read. I think it was worth reading. It's also short. I mean, I should have read this a long time ago. I had that thought immediately. I was like, damn, man, whoever, whatever guy was like, start with capital, start with even the Communist Manifesto. I think that Hakeem from the program really has it right when he says that this is a great place to start because it is really cut and dry. And it's also not hard to understand. It's funny to think that the the manifesto is written for the layman because I think if you gave the manifesto to a layman today, they'd be like, get this shit out of my face. Mm -hmm. Like, what am I trying to read the Bible or something? But this is even written more simply than that. Yeah. And I think that's part of the problem with moving into leftist spaces is all of this sort of reading, much of it tends to be very dry. Most of the people, Engels, as we saw in the quote earlier, Lenin, very famously, neither of them considered themselves great writers. And so they knew that what they were putting on the page was not going to be the most captivating from that sense. And so it can sometimes feel like a bit of a slog. I really enjoyed reading this and I liked the catechismic kind of style because I think it does lend itself to a very clear and concise direction in the text. Yeah, absolutely. I I absolutely agree there. I think that it's really nice because some of the the next question is often the question that you had in your mind after reading the last one Mm -hmm. you know it's like oh we're abolishing private property what about the church and it's like here's how we feel about the church here's how we feel about gender and the family and it's like okay cool i think it is written nicely in that sense yeah i mean big picture questions we'll ask of every text is what we called this year so anything in particular you would like to say that uh, is something with which you agree from this text yeah workers of the world unite right like do the damn thing Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that this is still kind of ideas in its infancy, so to speak. And again, forgive my ignorance if I'm wrong about this, but like you spoke about how at the beginning in the first few items, he starts with like kind of a broader historical context. And I can see him writing around concepts that I know to be developed later, like things like alienation. Mm. Uh, I think ideologically, this is on point. It's right there. They know what what they're doing. Engels knows where he wants to go and it just gets further developed moving forward so i think uh i agree with pretty much all of it and i like the idea of talking about the globalization and revolution feeding revolution yeah and i think that certainly that can happen and i i certainly hope that it does with what do you disagree this was a tough one for me because i i was pretty you know maybe i'm too dogmatic but i felt pretty agreeable with just about everything here yeah, and, and again, maybe as we as we delve deeper and see other perspectives and feel the push and pull of those other other writers, other readings, other ideas, maybe things like this will become clearer. Because oftentimes, again, like we said, all of these writers have the same basic conception of where they want society to end. Yeah. What is the best way to get there is where they might disagree. And that's the only space in this reading that I feel like I might have some... I wouldn't even call it a disagreement, but maybe I'm hesitant to fully agree with the idea. Yeah. As expressed earlier, I think like as much as I like the idea of a revolution somewhere leading to revolution everywhere, I have trouble believing that that will happen without deliberate, intentional uh, kind of organization and movement. Yeah, I don't believe in a sporadic. I mean, I don't. I don't believe in like a spontaneous, uh, like a horizontal revolution. I just don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. Because, and you know, this is 
you mentioned the Jakarta method earlier. I read Benson Bevan's new book, When We Burn, or If We Burn. And he talks about how a lot of these like horizontal, spontaneous, large online movements are immediately co-opted. Mm-hmm. You know, they are taken over very quickly. Either they expand too rapidly and can't can contain itself. Right? It can't keep organized. And the message gets spread thin, like the aim changes and that kind of thing. So that's where I would agree with you there. I mean, I think it's really funny that he had lists out essentially a, a t- like literally a 12 step program for doing yeah. doing the communism. And I'm not going to be like, you're an idiot for writing out 12 specific steps, but I just think it's a little prescriptive, you know, mm. simply like, especially when it comes to things like create a central bank where we put all of the money in the hands of the state that might uh, not, you might not agree with that. <laughs> a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. Have you read Society of the Spectacle, Guidobo, the Situationist International? You've talked to me about Situationists before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's where the spectacle comes from. This idea of co-opting a movement uh, is also something that Debo talks about. Yeah, he calls it recuperation. Coca-Cola, every fucking June, puts out their Pride Month cans. Yep. They pretend that they are on the side of the LGBT community. They pretend that they give a shit. And all they're doing is taking a movement, taking a mass movement that is interested in the liberation of a people and exploiting it to make money while doing absolutely nothing. And in fact, in many ways, acting counter to that, that's called recuperation. And we see that happening everywhere. I mean, it's all sorts of like you hear every kind of washing on, you know, pink washing, green washing, rainbow washing, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, we should read Gramsci. He talks a lot about hegemony and cultural assimilation. I think the fear of recuperation uh, certainly is something that maybe he doesn't take as seriously as he should. They're quite confident. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the the note that I wrote to myself here was about his dismissal of the lumpen proletariat or his false consciousness as a force that's going to have to be overcome among the working class. I don't think it will be quite as easy as they seem to idealistically think it would be. I mean... Look at the fucking working class in America, man. They're the most reactionary sons of guns in the world. I mean, not really, though. Actually, now that I'm thinking that, we're more alike than we are different. Yeah, but because we so often fall victim to the narratives that are created by the ruling class to to sow division among the working class. Yeah. I mean, I would say racism is a weapon of class division. Yeah. That is certainly used to great effect to create xenophobic fear of people coming over the border and create class divisions among working people where people feel some sense of superiority uh, with uh, white collar work over blue collar work and different things like that. So it's very easy to fall into those false narratives, which is something that needs to be overcome that maybe they don't at at this stage, they underestimate it a little bit. I'm hoping as we read more, there's that's so like not a concrete plan. That's not what I'm looking for, but I just hope that as we read more, we see more of like a, an understanding that this is something that they'll have to deal with, you know, not only in this, but also in like, you know, when we were, when we talked about in conquest, the conquest of bread forever ago, I said that it was incredibly idealistic and I feel similar here. Like, even though this is way more scientific and maybe like logical, not that Kropotkin is not. Don't, I was going to say, don't come yeah, for my bread. No, no, Kropotkin. not like that. Um, it's still very like, we're going to do it. We're yeah. going to do a revolution. We're going <laughs> to seize the means. Like, that kind of thing. What did Engels seem to get right about society and history? You know, knowing that this was written in 1847, 
we have the benefit of hindsight now to look back. Yeah. What did he get right? Oh my gosh. So the different socialist flavors, we didn't talk about this specifically except for the democratic socialism part, but he talks about different kinds of socialists, how socialists, how socialists differ from communists. And he talks about that division. And I think that throughout history, the three categories that he lists, which are um, reactionary socialists, democratic socialists, and bourgeois socialists, keep appearing. You know, the first thought I had was the fact that like Benito Mussolini originally started as a Marxist scholar. That was his kind of flavor. And I think he used a lot of the kind of popular movement of it to create fascism. I mean, it's still, he says it here in question 24. As soon as the proletariat becomes revolutionary, these reactionary socialists show their true colors by immediately making common cause with the bourgeoisie against the proletarians. So, like, I just thought, even though Mussolini was able to create a popular base, I mean, he had, like, the black shirts. And as soon as they put him into power, it became corporatocracy, like, it it became fascism, right? I think that he was really on point about that. And I, I was cracking up reading about democratic socialists because you hear... So much from, especially if you're online like I am, how like, oh, you know, the democratic, so the DSA is the progressive wing of fascism, right? It's like you scratch a liberal and a fascist bleeds. It's like all of these things. And I just thought that it was really poignant the way that he said, you know, democratic socialists are either representatives of the bourgeois or they haven't figured it out yet. It's mm-hmm. like they're halfway there. And I thought that was really, really funny. Yeah, I don't really have anything to add to that other than this banger of a line where he says in 24-1, where he's talking about the reactionary socialists, says this category of reactionary socialists for all their seeming partisanship and their scalding tears for the misery of the proletariat is nevertheless energetically opposed by the communists. And I just love that fucking scalding tears for the misery of the proletariat. That's a great fucking line. Scalding tears. That's a great fucking line. Did you catch anything that you feel like Engels got wrong? Kind of what I mentioned earlier, I think that and kind of what we had both talked about earlier, the, the way that capital is like subsuming things, like it's assimilating things. Mm-hmm. It's more of a hegemonic force than I think maybe Engels at least writes about here. You can't fault the guy for given the vantage that he had at the time, seeing what capitalist, the capitalist class at the re- industrial revolution looked like compared to what the capitalist class looks like now. You can't fault him for not having that range of scope. Of course. But yeah, I do think that he'd he'd be fucking appalled to see where things have gone. Yeah. So he doesn't get that wrong, but I mean, like, how does that change or reshape his point or his method? I think, obviously, it's a, it's a stronger, more monolithic force than I think he had accounted for. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, one thing I think that is interesting is they talk about the cycle of economic boom and bust right? That's like part of capitalism. I don't think they ever would have predicted that the government does it themselves. Like that the government says, let's do a crash now. So we don't have one later. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll, they'll do fucking shock doctrine. I think that that would probably like kill poor angles. Just like, (laughs) Oh God. What is one to do now to put into action a communist project based on this reading? What do you think is the next step? Yeah. What, what I had said here is that One thing I really like about this is that it is a really nice basis for a definition. Like if you don't have a good understanding of like the proletariat, you don't need to go and read capital to figure it out, right? You could read this and get a pretty good understanding of the history, how that happened, kind of the the shifting landscape there, the modes of production, and also just an idea of what communism actually wants. You know, I think that if you asked 
a bunch of people what communism is, you'd get a bajillion different answers. Mm-hmm. You know, there are like principled communists that have a, defin- a definition in mind, but I think most leftists probably have their own idea. I don't think people are like, oh, communism is when the government does stuff, but I think that everyone's definition is a little bit different yeah. than what you might expect. This is obviously not a roadmap to revolution. It doesn't tell you everything that needs to happen for the communist project to come to full fruition. Yeah. But what it does do is create a logical basis from which everyone can move forward. So I think the logical next step is to do something, I don't know, make a podcast or something to like try to spread awareness of the definitions that are presented there, the questions that are raised to create more consciousness among people that are interested in moving forward in their own political awakening or radicalization or whatever you want to call it in order to take the next step. Yeah, I think that even just talking about these things with other people is productive. You know, having those conversations with people will change their mind, whether they like it or not. I'm not saying it's going to make them communists, but I think that, like, having a good faith discussion with someone is a great way to to introduce them to something like this. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that if you were to read this and just want to talk about it to somebody, it would be a pretty productive conversation because this is the way that I kind of got into communism. You know, I had a bunch of set ideas about what it was and my buddy sat me down and not didn't sit me down, but we were talking one night and it just kind of, uh, I think that there's a lot to be gained from discussion of this kind of thing. Yeah, I would agree. I legitimately don't know how or why I sought out my first communist text. I, I have a distinct memory. I was in a uh, macroeconomics content through writing, which is crazy, but you had to do Sounds all enthralling. Yeah. It was all it was an all essays based course. And we were talking about markets, we were talking about fairness, we were talking about equilibrium, supply and demand, and how the market allows for all of the people to get what they need. And I'm like, if the goal is for everyone to get what they need, why don't we have a system where we just give people what they need? And he's like, Oh, well, you're talking about communism. This was before I was a communist. Mm-hmm. And he just started going on this like tirade about like if my son plays the violin and another son down the street plays the violin, they'd take supplies from my son to get the-. and I'm like, This is not what I was asking. <laughs> but that was like the first time where I really was just like, What the f- what the fuck is this? Like this is totally incoherent. Maybe there's something more to this. Yeah. Other people's complete misconceptions about communism drive you to actually understand what communism truly is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and that was the show. Will, why don't you tell them what we're going to be reading next time? Next, we're going to be reading... State and Revolution. Yeah, so uh, go read State and Revolution by Vladimir Ilyanovich Lenin. Given its length, we don't want to bite off more than we can chew. So looking at State and Revolution, it looks like we've got six chapters. So I think for next time, we're going to read the first three and convene to talk about that. So if you'd like to read along with us certainly would highly recommend you do so definitely i think that these would probably not be great if you listen to them first and then read them second i'm just gonna be honest yes agreed yes agreed (laughs) (laughs) i think like because obviously we're not going through and and spelling out everything that's coming from the text we're reacting to the text so you have to have an understanding of the text itself to fully contextualize what we're saying okay so that was episode one tell us what you thought We would love to hear from folks. What do you think we got right? What do we get wrong? What can we change about the show, right? This is the first time we've done this. And like we said, we're idiots. So send us your feedback at leftunreadfeedback at gmail.com. Absolutely. Questions, concerns, comments, vegan chili recipes. 
Whatever you like. Um, how are we signing this off? I don't know. We don't we don't have a good sign off, do we? Bye. <laughs> <laughs>